0: Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by my friend Pete Spiliakos to talk about Blade Runner 2049. Our last podcast was a long discussion of Blade Runner and the questions of slavery and freedom, of the soul and of self understanding for being human. Now we turn to Blade Runner 2049, which is not exactly a sequel, but has a strong relationship to the original, because it too is about the question of integrity and humanity. The difference in stress is that this time around, the question is, to be human, you have to have some kind of relationship to other beings that are also human. Is that possible? Is technology teaching us to stop doing that? Do we take scientific progress to mean a repeal of what our friend Peter Lawler called our relational being? That which makes us human and is revealed only in our love and friendship with other human beings and is not within our individual control. Well, Pete, I know you have thoughts on this and I am looking forward to hearing what's on your mind. How are you doing?
1: Pretty good. I wasn't going to watch Blade Runner 2049, but I managed to get three or four hours to myself and I decided to go watch. It. And I was struck in watching the movie that while it's not a noir movie the way the first movie is, it's a cleverly disguised horror movie, which I think leaves a significant part of the audience unsatisfied with what they're expecting. I mean, the movie actually has better action scenes than the first one. But the movie itself, from the way it's shot, and maybe its most important character is the soundtrack, the tones and the loud rushing noise that you constantly hear. The movie is designed to build the audience up with horror of their own in- significance and alienation It's designed to make the audience feel alone and to make the audience question whether any of the relationships they have are real or whether they matter because every character in the movie has either a commercial relationship or a work relationship or is being hunted but it's not simply the relationships of the characters whenever k is driving whenever k is walking you're hit with his aloneness he can't reach out to anybody he can't talk to anybody and the one person that he talks to isn't real which renders him not simply, the situation It's not just scary, the situation is also pathetic. But I also think K stands in for a lot of people so going into this wired world where people are more interested in what's on a screen than in actual human relations. That's where the director took this movie. It's no longer about, are we beings with souls? It's, are we beings that are going to be isolated from each other? And are we doomed to be isolated with each other? And not only that, are we doomed to embrace being isolated from each other in this world of comforting illusions?
0: Yeah, that's very much true, Pete. And I think this is the Kafka part of the story. Our protagonist is called Kay, and his imaginary robot girlfriend, Computer, Voice with hologram calls him Joe. Of course, Yosef K is the name of uh, Kafka's protagonist in the trial, and K is also the guy in the castle. Because, like in Kafka novels, the question here is, are you really real? You can't make sense of the world. You go around the world, and the more you act, the more it seems like your actions don't really add up, don't make a difference. You can have no consequences in the world, and there's nobody there to guarantee for you that, yeah, you really are real. I know it. I'm real. You're real. That's what isolation means. Isolation means that you no longer know whether you're real. No wonder the movie is not that popular, people don't want to sign up for two hours and a half, but feeling pretty miserable actually. Even with a handsome, sympathizable guy like Ryan Gosling headlining. I can see what attracted him to the role. It's the knight of the sad visage. There's a certain attraction. He's a noble loser. He's a guy who doesn't want to hurt people. He's a bruiser who doesn't want to
1: hurt people. The movie also is pretty powerful about technology acting as a substitute for personal love. Because the computer program makes him happier than any human being ever could. It provides him things that he wanted in exactly the way that he wanted them. More than any actual human being ever would. And I thought one of the most chilling scenes in the movie was not him killing Batista And it wasn't Jared Leto, stabbing a woman in the womb. Which should be horrifying. But I thought the most terrifying scene was it's that a bunch of prostitutes are hanging on him. And finally one of them gives up when he looks at the hologram stick that he has in his clothes. And she says, he doesn't like real girls controls and then they walk away in defeat and contempt. Well, if you look at surveys about sex and marriage, starting in East Asia, but also working its way across the developed world, that pulled me short, because there is already a lot of substitution of screens and the internet and pornography for real relationships. And that's before you have anything like you have in the movie, though we're going to have things like we have in the movie, in some sense better, and in some of the deeper sense worse. In Blade Runner, the first one, you have a situation in which violence and the power of the state being deployed to make people less than people. Whereas in Blade Runner 2, you're having technology deployed in the commercial sector, and people are choosing to be less than people, which in some sense is even scarier. You can revolt against the Tyrell Corporation, but how do you revolt against getting what you want in a more perfect way than another person could provide it for you, without any of the bother and any of the surprises that are inevitable in dealing with other human beings?
0: Yep. To some extent, this takes up the question of the Spike Jones movie Her, and as a friend of mine says, Amazon does for me things that no man can. Well, the robot voice, seductive as it is in Her, cannot do that. It can cause love, it can never understand or reciprocate, but it cannot fill up the moments of a life and the needs of a body. Amazon Corporation can do that. You'll get everything you want, as you want it, when you want it, with all sorts of surprise offers so that you can want more things and with better and better guessing at what things will give you pleasure, what things will give you the satisfaction of imposing your will on the world in however small a way, what will make you believe you are real because there's some small thing you can change in the world in a way you like and that might replace the alternative, the problem with other people is that they're always different They always oppose a certain resistance to our will, and we're going through a kind of hierarchy of dissatisfaction with the world we live in. Children are gradually replaced by pets, but as you can see on popular reality TV shows with this exotic, wise Latino guy, Cesar, the dog whisperer, I mean, spoofed on South Park, your pets can become brats too. Your pets can tyrannize you. That's just an expression of the fact that pets too will refuse your imposition of will on them. And after that, what can you do? Well, you have to replace pets by something else. Food will do it. Sunset at the beach will do it. Things you can photograph and put on Instagram. The food doesn't fight back. The sunset doesn't fight back. You can mass produce beauty and beautiful looking food and beautiful looking poses, people, environments, landscapes ad infinitum and post them all on Instagram. They will not resist your will. They will be there to testify that your effect on the world means you're real and having fun. And so we seem less and less able to deal with resistance to our will. But that's what makes people people. What Blade Runner wanted to teach us is that That a lot of put-upon people, from workers to replicants, are nevertheless able to resist being controlled. They have an inside inside of them that allows them to resist being moved from outside. Now, however, we're confronted with this question. What if there's something so seducing that you will abandon your own inside because it can be objectified? How do you know who you are? Well, you know because of the things you have. Do. Instagram. All of these things testify to who you are and make you known to other people. Maybe people don't believe in the gospel of Jesus, but they believe in the gospel of Zuckerberg. In Facebook, you will be known as you truly are, not through a glass darkly. You have been ignored for too long and you need your shot at celebrity. That's where you go to get it. And this desperate desire to make your effect on the world and to be recognized as who you are, to know for sure that you're real and that you matter to at least somebody, that seems to be leading in this direction. The truth is, Facebook will make you miserable if you experience it, however good it might sound to people who keep signing up or used to. But Amazon doesn't disappoint in the way Facebook does. And Amazon is real technological progress in a way Facebook is just a fake. What if this keeps getting developed to the extent that the stuff you want can be delivered to you? Why would you say no? And if you cannot tell that saying no is, is somehow part of the inside, that secret inside of you, how could you deal with that in other people who say no to you? or with whom you cannot have transparency, with whom you cannot have perfect meeting of wills and minds. There's something scarily plausible about this world where you reserve your humanity for computers.
1: It reminded me a lot of That Hideous Strength, the novel by C.S. Lewis, I don't know if you've read it, where he talks about the earth-facing side of Solva, the moon, where the marriages are barren, where they are too delicate to lay down with the robots, they lay down with robots made warm from eternal science. and. And that was the scene in the book, I must have read it 20 years ago, that was the most horrifying scene in the book except for his description of how powerful temptation is. But he was being too optimistic because when he says where the marriages are barren, he's assuming there are marriages. And when you look at isolation of isolation and substitution of computers and artificial intelligence, not just for sex, but for companionship, it's actually much scarier than that. And we're not even close to being there yet. Part of the original Blade Runner is that Deckard understands eventually that these replicants are human beings. Part of K's growth is understanding that this computer program is not a human being. One of his moments of revelation is when he looks at a poster or a billboard or whatever it's called in that world, and it says everything you want to hear. And where he understands is why this holographic woman is so satisfying to him emotionally, is that these artificial programs are iterative, and through a process of trial and error, this program has figured out what it's like, like banner ads on your phone or whatever, and is reflecting back to you what you like, but it isn't real, it isn't an actual relationship. I think the temptation is much stronger than even the movie lets On, that people are going to have a lot more trouble dealing with it than Kay did, and our profits at this point might well actually be uh, the Warner Brothers cartoons. Did you ever watch the Bugs Bunny cartoon where he's in a haunted house?
0: I don't know he's that a-
1: one. He's in a haunted house, and he's being chased by a monster, and a lot of daffy stuff, weird stuff goes around, and he meets a uh, sexy robot bunny. And in the middle of the short, he sees, oh, she's mechanical. And at the end of the cartoon, he sees her, she kisses him, she walks away robotic and then he looks to Karen and says so she's mechanical and then he starts robotically walking behind her that's how the short ends and yeah that's where we're going
0: yeah it's strange to think that maybe it's ourselves that's where the problem is you're right that there's a kind of slow-mo horror quality to the movie that forces upon you whether you like it or not the realization that this is not a human world anymore and it's not clear whether human being is possible they look human but are they really human and don't we all look human but how human do we really feel how many people really believe that the best thing to be is human. There's worldwide research going on with people online looking at cats, dogs, red pandas and honey badgers trying to figure out whether maybe it's not secretly better to be that because look at all the clever things they do and they don't seem miserable like we are So also with the much more targeted research to turn human beings into robots or computers, because again, if you're one of the successful few, it's not worth being human. It's just not good enough. You need to get something better. Maybe that's the problem. We're tempted. There's no way we can be satisfied with being merely human. Trying to figure out whether we really are human is a humbling way to look at it. And in the case of Kay, he has to face this at some point, two-thirds through the movie Harrison Ford shows up, and he says this one fundamental thing that sometimes to love somebody you have to be a stranger. In a movie where nobody seems to have a mother or a father or a brother or a sister or a son or a daughter, it's a really weird thing to say and not all that persuasive, but I think that's precisely the point that things can go so bad that thinking of love in a mysterious way is the only beginning you've got left. What if it doesn't happen that your parents made the right choices, that you were born in the right social class or had the right circumstances? How do you deal with things then? And this kid learns that he in some sense believes this, that he believes that he had a father, that there is something back of him that made him that he is connected to, that if he goes back to his origins he will find something satisfying there, something good and caring. What Harrison Ford is saying is that there's some providence, it's just really hard to find. You can't take the mystery out of love, but you should see the good in that, too. That it means that you cannot wipe it out. Fairly optimistic.
1: Also, there's characters in the movie who are willing to take risks for real relational love. And are all willing to bear the pain of real relational love. You have Kay, who's not at all willing to deal with real women because he's got a fake woman who's better. But at the beginning, you have David Batista, who buried the bones of this woman. He says, I've seen a miracle, but at the same time, he's also seen the pain of loss in that Batista's replicant character he had so much love that it, he buried her bones under the only living thing that was out there because she mattered. And you have Harrison Ford's character, you have Deckard who's living as a recluse, not because it's better, not because it makes him happier but because he is sacrificing personal love because another person out there matters. Whereas, Kay, he has a job to do and he does his job the alternative to him doing his job would be to be retired, to be killed but to the extent that he's not forced to associate with others. He does everything he can not to associate with others. Not because he's doing it in a sacrificial way, but because he would prefer not to associate with others. He would prefer not to have the pain of human relationships.
0: Yeah, and that shows that in some sense we have brought the bar very, very low. Like you were pointing out, barren marriages still assumes marriages. In a world where people don't marry, what the hell will that even mean? It is true that we have to revise even our warnings to deal with our actual circumstances. And there's something similar in what you said, planting somebody under a tree. Now this is actually done. There are places where you see on graveyards there are trees to symbolize life, that life goes on. There's something good in itself about life, and even though some people die, they give life to others and those people still live. There is something about the human species that lives on, and each human being has to square with that somehow to get some hope despite personal mortality and the mortality of those we love. And the burial is an act of humanity in that sense, it is the foundation of family and religion. We bury our dead so that they don't end up like everything else that dies. We kill animals and then eat the carcasses. We don't want to do that to our people and we don't want anybody to do that to people. We want as much as possible to avoid that. We bury or embalm to try to save the shapes or we sometimes, if we're afraid of destruction, we burn the dead precisely so that they won't be consumed. We don't want to be food for worms. That's an assertion that the human shape, that the human being is important. It matters and it has to be preserved and that's where the movie starts and it seems like that's the least we can do. And the next thing is birth. Giving birth is so important to this movie. Strangely, this guy, Denis Villeneuve, seems to be a very pro-life director in a fundamental sense, not in a polemical or a political sense. His previous movie was arrival which also is about a woman who learns that she's gonna have a child who's gonna die young and she has to still choose to have that child Or will only have 12 years of life or whatever and then it's for sure dead you know the future do you still choose that is the goodness of human life real even for a child so in this movie you have this question about could that be a miracle could that be something that is to say that shakes people out of this deadening comfort Could they remember that giving birth means you're okay with dying. That's what makes dying okay. That woman gave birth and she was okay with dying. And it can reconcile you to your mortality. But again, birth is not specifically human. Funeral is, strangely enough, but birth is not. Everything that is alive has to have more living of its kind, and every animal gives birth. But we somehow are caught in this nightmare of artificiality, where remembering the basics of inhuman nature, birth is the beginning of wisdom. It's because we share with all other animals not only birth, but also death, and birth is what makes it worthwhile. That's why it's worth putting up with the ordeal and taking the risks and making the sacrifices. In the case of K, what makes it worthwhile to him is that he believes that somebody was his father, somebody was his mother. It seems like to a large extent his self-satisfied life of lonely misery is about self-contempt. He never mattered to anybody. He doesn't think he matters. It's weakness. His life is not full of pleasures or contentment or whatever. He has very little going on, actually. And it seems like maybe he doesn't think he deserves any better.
1: Well, there's also at the very beginning of the movie, when he's tasked with hunting down the replicant that was born from Susan from Blade Runner, he says, I never killed anything that was born. I never killed anything with a soul before. Which just shows that nobody learned anything from from the first movie. The knowledge died with Deckard, apparently. But also what brings K to a moral awakening is the belief that he was born. It's interesting that the movie inverts the You're Special from terminator onwards an ordinary seeming protagonist turns out to be a savior figure where k thinks he has a soul because he was born he thinks he was deckard and susan's kid and he found out he wasn't his memories were actually created by the kid of deckard and susan but that's okay because he doesn't need to be the savior figure to matter because all beings matter but he is able to understand that he had a soul even though he wasn't necessarily born having a soul is not something for an elite Having a soul is for rational beings that are mortal, and he's a rational being, and he's immortal, and that's good enough. He's able to accept that he matters, and also that other people matter. It makes genuine self-sacrifice possible for him. Only after is he able to take risks in order to save Deckard, and to allow Deckard and his daughter to have a real relationship.
0: Yeah, and that brings up again the question of integrity, of having a wholeness of who you are, that you're not simply an accidental series of parts. You're not just matter in motion. You are you. There's something specific to your form, its integrity, its wholeness. In Blade Runner, Deckard was sure of himself at some level. He had contempt for himself, but he had contempt for the authorities. He was not obedient. That showed that he could resist. He could find something inside of him to oppose to things he thought not right. K doesn't have that. And that shows you the importance of this noir hero. Somebody has to feel... It's up to him to stand up. And in his case, he has to discover it through this illusion of parents. This illusory family gives him his first real connection to humanity. And his illusory girlfriend never did. There's something different about this illusion. And that's why it's tied up with sacrifice somehow. What he knows about his imaginary girlfriend-computer-robot thing is, it doesn't make a difference. He learns that he himself can make a difference. There's no sacrifice or self-sacrifice if your actions do not have consequences, if you do not make a difference, literally, if you don't matter. He is not just matter, that he matters. He can assert his own importance and then figure out why. Why is he important? It's because he can stand up for worthwhile things. That unlike the supposed rebellion, he's not there to sacrifice other people for his purposes. He learns that he's there because he has a certain desire to sacrifice himself. There's a moral arc to K, but there's also a certain continuity of character. His self-contempt turns into self-abnegation. Doesn't live happily ever after. He's not a happy guy anyway. The question is his unhappiness and his misery. Does it have a human content? Does it have human importance as one specific person? That's what he seems to grab on to.
1: And also, the illusion that he had parents is structurally similar to the fantasy that kids might have in stratified society that they're not really peasants, that their real parents were aristocrats or kings or queens, and therefore that they're princesses. Now, that kind of story serves a purpose. It's not simply a dream of sudden wealth, it's also a stage towards understanding that you matter too, no matter how much other people tell you that you and people in your station don't matter that understanding that oh my god my parents were someone different from who they said they were and yet i'm still the same person and yet now i mattered when i didn't matter before even if you learn that they weren't really your parents that feeling doesn't change because you've had a change in your understanding of who you are i mean at that point Kay understood It's not like he could have mattered, and then he did not matter, and then he did matter, and then he didn't matter again. He realized that he was a human being, and that he did matter, and that wasn't going to be changed simply by learning that he wasn't that real child in his memories. But at the same time, he's able to say, okay, I'm a being with a soul. I thought I hunted beings without souls. Turns out I did, and I'm one with a soul myself. Now the question is, what do you do about that? It's the first time he's able to make an actual choice. What do I do? Yeah, you have to
0: realize that you have an inside inside of you that's perplexing in order to have a choice, otherwise you do what you're told or you choose your pleasures, you desire something and you will it, like on Amazon.com. But to say no, to refuse, implies some kind of choice and that implies that you have to pick between different means in accordance with a purpose that is itself not obvious. Why do such and such a thing? You have to set yourself a purpose. It is the ability to set yourself a purpose that creates a choice that creates alternatives for you. Otherwise, you just go with the flow, and you see both with Deckard and with K, what a long time it takes, even as doing your job goes when you're an investigator detector, how long it actually takes to turn that into meaning you're gonna be learning something in your investigations and detections, and that learning is going to create a purpose for you, or is going to discover for you, reveal to you what your real purpose is the relationship between the detective and the horror genres. The detective story starts with something happened that's bad that you gotta deal with, and this seems to be a justice question. But then it turns into this question of how is this even possible? How do we live in a world where catastrophic things happen? And that brings up the question of being human, and justice turns out to depend on somebody enforcing it, and that turns out to bring up this question of why should this guy matter? How is this guy a protagonist with his hangdog, gloomy face? Well, he takes this burden upon himself. Any injustice, it would seem, could bring up this problem. This is the character of the world. There's some possibility for justice, some possibility for injustice, and human beings are perched in a really dangerous position that always threatens to say, we could work way around being human. We could get away from this. And what's specific about K is that he's going the other way. That's his show of manliness. He's discovering mortality, he's not trying to run away from mortality, he's trying to run into it. He starts without knowing anything about mortality when he meets this Dave Bautista guy. He's not at all afraid for himself, although that robot is much bigger than him. But I guess he's newer model and he thinks he's stronger. Turns out it's not that easy. But he doesn't understand what mortality means for that one either. He tells the guy, let it happen, just don't fight. Oppose no resistance. Doesn't see that that's tied up with mortality because he doesn't see that he's trying to kill somebody. And that's the first step he takes to this discovery of mortality. And that somehow is the question that you have to confront. You cannot be human without being mortal. You have to be alright with mortality.
1: Well once again that goes back to the first movie where it literally is the phrase time to die repeats itself throughout the movie with different meanings every time that we hear it. But also at the same time, he does have some kind of a conscience, because he is conscious also about killing other replicants, because he's convinced that replicants don't matter. He has bought into the propaganda that replicants are not yeah. human, which is even more tragic, because unlike Susan, he's a replicant who knows he's a replicant, and he believes he doesn't matter. Susan doesn't know she's a replicant, and she thinks she matters, and then she finds out she is a replicant, and she's shattered by the novel. Whereas Kay is really pathetic in his acceptance of it. But it makes him a more efficient killer than Deckard ever was. Not only because he's stronger, but because he has no conscience. He has more
0: self-contempt. His destructive activity literally acts out his self-contempt. He can kill himself in every one of these replicants without thinking through what he's doing.
1: And well, he's killing things that don't matter, and he himself is a thing that doesn't matter. He's doomed to die, but at the same time, his life outside of work... What is it? It's a form of self-forgetfulness, where he lives a simulation of human relationships. In a
0: simulation of a human society, let's add. It's an inhuman world with inhuman pastimes. All of them are simulations. Nothing is real anymore. These things add up, the Dave Bautista replicant and the coffin with bones under a tree, and then the road to sacrifice. A miracle is needed for you to think that you're real and that being human is real. There's no escape from the situation otherwise. The combination of virtual pleasures that show your willful control of the world and your experience of a meaningless life where you have no control because you don't matter and nothing matters, that combination, paradoxically as it is, seems airtight. This miracle breaks it.
1: The materialism really is completely despairing. And that's something that both Arrival and this movie share. They deal with the problem of materialism through the reality of human relationships in other words that we know that we matter and we know that other people matter through our relationships with each other it's natural to us if we're only willing to accept it if we're willing to avoid ideologizing or philosophizing the importance of these things away then we can understand what really matters now Arrival is my favorite movie of the last 10 years and you can see him working through a lot of the same ideas especially the idea that we're naturally relational beings but we're also beings that are doomed to hurt to hurt alone but even to hurt each other are we willing to embrace it or are we going to run away from it? Because that's what Jeremy Renner's character does in Arrival. He runs away. One of the things about Arrival is that there's something symbolic about the girl dying at 12 because everybody's going to die sometime. Either you will lose everybody or you'll be the one that's lost eventually. And running away from her dying at 12 might as well be running away from everything and everybody. At the beginning, Kay is in the perspective of where we don't actually see Jeremy Renner doing that. But that's basically what Kay does in the beginning of the movie. He's running away from the human being as a relational being. But at the same time, if you do that, it's either self forgetfulness or you. You're looking to be a tyrant one or the other yeah that's a good point. there
0: is also a certain danger tied up with our strange new powers we can evacuate humanity from everybody else but that's a lot of work you have got to have people of great ambition with all the genius and the power and the talent all their work comes down to proving that other people are worthless it's a strangely confrontational sort of thing Put it this way, there's this Republican logic of politics where people compete. Everybody wants to be the best. Everybody wants to end up president, but not everyone can, a few can, and they have to compete. And to some extent, that allows the best to be judged by the best. You hope that systems of tournament for politics and for other things, so also with the market, they select the best. There's also the imperial system where none of that happens. The logic of empire is administration. You want order, you want things to happen in a predictable way, not to have competitions and contests and all this unpredictable stuff where you don't know the results in advance. And here we get a perverse combination of both. Unlike in Empire, in Blade Runner 2049, things are not organized in an orderly way that more or less seems self-sustaining. But on the other hand, unlike in a Republican regime, the best don't rise to the top. The competition is between somebody who wants to tyrannize everybody else and whoever is going to stand up against him. There is a kind of resistance, apparently, and you see there's a possibility with people like Kate, people like the Dave Bautista replicant. You don't want to be part of this, you can try to get away. But emperors don't oppress their people to prove their rule, and they don't prove their rule by oppressing their people. Whereas this guy seems to be hard at work to remove from every other being dignity. You have these replicants, that's what the new bad guy Neander Wallace brings to the story. You can get replicants to kill themselves on order. You can create a new being that is fully under the control of your will and so with k he has a baseline that he has to repeat from which he cannot deviate it's a technological substitute for ideology
1: I read the baseline as being the equivalent of a test from the first Blade Runner movie. It's testing for emotional reaction. And if the emotional reaction is wrong, this replicant's having emotions he's not supposed to be having. It's basically a version of the same test. But what yeah, struck that's me a good point. was that Kay and Jared Leto are different ways of dealing with anatomized technological world. is version of it is to cut off from the rest of society as much as possible. He is, what do they call those in Japan, those guys who just sit in their rooms and stay on the computer Shut all the time? Ins.
0: I know what it, you mean, yeah.
1: It's a Japanese word. But that's what he, whereas Jared Leto's way of dealing with it, since he can't find meaning in real relationships with other people, is to control as much as possible, to create as many slaves who are as slavish as as possible. And that's how he is able to find meaning. Now, it's not clear why he's doing this. He seems to have plenty of money, and <clears throat> there might be some unslagged demand for slaves in the off-world colonies, but at the end of the day, who cares? If there'll be a market, they'll be filled by somebody else. What difference does it make? Why is he so obsessed with taking risks in order to create ever more slaves? Well, for him, that's the meaning-creating engine. That's his method of self-forgetting, okay? self-forgets by talking to an artificial woman. This guy self-forgets by creating more perfect slaves.
0: That's the weirdly competitive aspect of it, that they're both trying to objectify their will in puppets, simulacra, in fake human beings. This guy wants to control things that don't fight back, but he's hard at work to make sure that they don't fight back they don't resist his will. In his case, it's an angry imposition of will. But imposing your will on a robot that has to learn your whims and satisfy them as K does, it's the same will imposition. And,
1: uh, yeah, Kay was different. One's more accurate than the other. But it's the same basic idea. But the thing is, they're both running away from the same aspect of humanity.
0: Yeah, and that's the weird thing is how similar they are. You would think that master and slave, or ruling and ruled, or oppressor and oppressed, or however you think, that they'd be different. But in this case, they're not. That seems to be the real danger, that you have a weird in uniformity and the weird conformism. K. Superior, who judges him, she has to administer his test and figure out that he conforms, when it turns out that replicants would give birth, she says, well, this could be revolutionary, we have to hide the truth. And she tells K. yeah, you have no soul, but you've done all right without one. Weird kind of conformism. They're not even looking for a way out. If anything, they're looking to prevent a way out.
1: Well, also, I think it brings back a lot of the slavery and race metaphors, Mm -hmm. from the first Blade Runner movie. Once again, what the police officer suggests is that if it turns out that replicants are, for all practical intents and purposes, as human as humans are, then the social consequences would be unacceptable. It would be the equivalent of having a slave who turned out to be a brilliant scientist, philosopher, doctor in 1840s South Carolina. You wouldn't necessarily take your kid to be cured by him, you would kill him because it would undermine everything you claimed about the society, would undermine the entire basis for your entire civilization. They wouldn't believe that they could take the shock and that's basically the yeah. same idea everybody knows their place we have a public philosophy that governs social relations if that public philosophy is demonstrated to be false then how will people respond to recognizing this public philosophy is false
0: yeah it's strange how you end up in this weird situation where what you're policing for is to make sure that nobody's any better or more dignified than you say they are it's...
1: yeah but we have I think we have been there before. As we talked about in the earlier podcast, we've been...
0: Yeah, the thing that's haunting so much of American pop culture now is this possibility that the old world is coming back and it's going to eat up the new world and every horror of the regimes of inequality from antiquity or Middle Ages or early modernism is going to come back.
1: And also there's the fear that it'll be a highly stratified society, but not highly stratified in the sense that some people will be living in bigger houses or some people will be living in smaller houses or some people will be living in high rises while other people will be living in mansions. It's a fear that people will be living altogether different lives with altogether different forms of social organization that'll make practical equality virtually impossible. In other words, on paper, you'll have equality. Of rights, but in practice, this practical equality will never actually be able to be exercised. And Tyler Cohen, which he also sp- spoke about, he spoke positively. He can't, I can't always tell if he's being totally sincere when he talked about an America that has favelas where you actually have these shanty towns along the edges and you have these shining palaces within the central city and that being okay. In his mind, the people in the favelas would have the little pocket computers and they'll play their video games and they'll have very little work they'll be living on relatively cheap food and they'll be relatively happy and you'll have something like the stratified society you'd see in the time machine only the poorest would not be productive in the way that the moral box are productive and people would be happier than the alternative well that's a dystopia but at the same time I can see where as a libertarian Cohen might find that preferable in other words getting to that stratified America might in the short term be better for more people on a global level than the slower process of developing more equal middle class democracies across the world. In other words, you move a billion people to America, it won't be a democracy as we recognize it. It will not be intelligible as you're recognizing it. The inequalities would be so vast that it would be virtually impossible to govern as a democracy. But at the same time, as measured in terms of GDP per capita, we'd be better off than having less migration and having those societies go through a process of 3 or 4% or 5% economic growth over the period of the next 40 years and having living standards rise that way. That's a crazy way that indicates that libertarians are missing a lot of, if not most, of human life, but I think both Blade Runner movies actually look forward to that view of life.
0: Yeah, that's a very good description of this combination of equality and inequality of republic and empire that I've been trying to get at. On the one hand, we say we're all the same human beings around the world, so why should people in parts of the world where it's misery and death suffer while people in the civilized world have it good? Maybe you can sacrifice politics, democracy, and all this stuff so that you get misery spread out somewhat differently. And it turns out that for the vast majority, that's going to be a relative improvement. That's the equality part. And the inequality part is saying, and that means that there'll be a class of administrators who are going to be hard at work providing ways to dehumanize everybody so that they can live with this. It's, uh, the important thing about Tyler Cohen is that he doesn't foresee any social upheaval that's worth mentioning, he doesn't see a new civil war, he doesn't see America breaking apart in some violent political fashion, because that's not how human beings work. Contests over right, justice, honor, fame, they don't matter. You can equalize and rationalize human beings as all individual and their political differences don't matter, even if the people themselves say they do. You can get open borders even if most of the population doesn't want the borders open. It's an apolitical view that suggests that you can overcome conflict. But really, what will overcome political conflict? It would have to be a techno-tyranny.
1: Tyler Cohen at least recognized that open borders would be a politically self-destructive strategy that after a period of openness you would get closeness. Germany got the smallest taste of what open borders would look like and recoiled. Merkel basically said, no, 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 we can't have any more of this. And on, in back channels, Merkel worked with Turkey in order to minimize the flow into Germany. So Tyler Cohen, it's not like there's another guy who's uh, an open borders libertarian. I've forgotten his name now. He actually occasionally makes sense when you talk to him, when you get him off of, of economics. But once again, the problem problem with that point of view is that at the end of the day, citizens are not going to quietly give up We tend to apply that logic to Trump and Trump supporters. But I would also apply that logic to Bernie Sanders supporters where they basically revolted against what they saw as a kind of self-serving technocracy in the uh, Clinton campaign, where basically she said, listen, I'm a legacy politician. I have the best brand name. I have the best advisors. Damn it, I'm entitled. And basically a lot of Sanders supporters said, no, you want Bernie Sanders' promises mean more to me. But at the same time, Bernie Sanders is not acting like he's entitled to my vote the way that you're entitled to my vote. And when Bernie Sanders... Sanders promises stuff, he thinks that's the right thing for us, whereas when you promise stuff, you promise as if they are your grudging, compromise or prying it out of your fingers in order to get you jerks to vote for me and then I'll be president. Sanders treated his supporters as fellow citizens in a way that Clinton did. A lot of ways that the Republican politicians didn't. I think they have a lot to learn from Sanders, not his specific promises, but actually the thing with Sanders is, though, he's got a problem with his own political elites in that Sanders... A lot of nationalist politics that wise or unwise are not necessarily popular with his party's more cosmopolitan and college educated yep. elites, which creates some fissures. And I think a lot of younger and non white Sanders voters are more moderate about a lot of issues of national sovereignty than middle aged white liberals who are, in practice, post national and, and cosmopolitan. So I think that's an interesting fissure. That's a good point. So
0: to the extent to which the habits and institutions of citizenship exist, they are the barrier between where we are and where Blade Runner says we'll be. In that world, everybody has already ended up alone, but it seems like you have to abstract from that possibility of supporting even somebody like Bernie Sanders. Even in that case, you still see association and a certain sense of dignity, and that politics can express it and prosecute it. So long as that continues, you cannot end up with a Blade Runner world. Technology, in that sense, is the alternative to politics. Disappointments, misery, or something else might lead people to collapse organizationally and end up... Up saying there's one thing that works in a world of misery, and that's corporations. Our parties are in ruin, the educational system, or whatever people complain about, but nobody complains about Apple Corporation or what have you. Those things work. Amazon is the future, not the Democrat or Republican Party. And it's a future for everyone in a sense in which elite universities couldn't be, for example. That's the point. Will we have politics going on, or going forward, will technology fill up a gap of desperation and just give people what they want in a minimal way at the cost of their dignity.
1: In Blade Runner, you see a world that's entirely, you have government, but you don't have politics. None of the people in L.A. have any concept of citizenship. They're able to speak each other's languages, and they have a messy common language. But they're not citizens of the same place. They are simply inhabitants. That makes them radically vulnerable, because either you're police or you're little people. Decker doesn't have any associations that he could fall back on. There's no social capital. They are simply commercial relationships.
0: And so you see that, to some extent, the alternative to Blade Runner is a world where politics affirms dignity. And that would seem to be the meaning of a common good or national interest, is an expression of dignity, it cannot be pursued perfectly, but it works both as a guide and as a kind of backstop, it makes certain things intolerable. And that's the integrity of the body politic, that's one way of thinking about the borders too, they're the integrity of the body politic. Pete and I have started the Postmodern Conservative podcast and these are the sort of things we talk about and the parties and the electorates. You can listen to our podcast and see how you like this criticism of a politics that's forever preferring oligarchic solutions to the messy stuff of democracy where you actually have to represent citizens. I think we've come to the conclusion of our podcast, Pete. Thanks a lot for these discussions of Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. I think we've offered our audience some sense of why these are very thoughtful movies, what effect they're supposed to have on you, and what thoughts they're supposed to suggest, and why, even though they're not popular successes, they're among the best stuff out there and deserve some support. So thanks a lot, and let's do this again sometime soon.
1: My pleasure, Titus.
0: Bye-bye.